Okay, today is August the 5th, 2010. Let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. A few moments of silent prayer. Rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your plan for us individually as a church as a nation, but for your plan for the entire earth. We thank you for your word that is absolutely astounding and that you have given us all that we need in order to understand the great and mighty things, the deep things of your word because of your grace. So we pray that you will help us to concentrate, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) Howdy. Okay, uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Thank you, sir. We have embarked on a tremendous part of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul tells his... Believers in Thessalonica that he didn't have any reason to repeat again about the times and epics because he's already taught them that. And he says, for you are you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And we started on we just touched on the day of the Lord a little bit last time. And this is so huge. The day of the Lord. Is. Something that very few people know anything about, and yet it is a huge issue in the Bible. And I thought I would just give you, run you through a little part of the Scriptures that would give you an idea, the scope of what is taking place and what Paul had taught to the Thessalonian believers. He had already taught them about the day of the Lord. And I doubt that many of you know the complete significance of the day of the Lord. And that's why I wanted to run through a little scenario. We already went through Revelation uh, 1 through 3. We didn't go through it verse by verse, but you understand that this is dealing with the church on earth. Then you have Revelation chapter 4, and the scene changes. The next thing you know, it's the throne room of God. Then you get to chapter 5, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in chapter 5 of Revelation because it has bearing upon the significance of the day of the Lord. And it's about the scroll that is, is being opened. I mean, what is this about a scroll? Some translation says a book, but it's a scroll with seven seals on it. What is that all about? I mean, the Bible spends a whole chapter on it. There's, it's a big deal, and yet people know very little about it, and it has bearing upon the day of the Lord. So I'm going to go all the way back, starting with Adam again, actually even before that. We know that God created the heavens and the earth. He did it through Jesus Christ. And the heavens and the earth are God's. Every part of this earth is God's. He created it, and He created it for Himself, for His purpose. And He set, first of all, Adam over His creation. And Adam had dominion over the world because God gave it to him. Now, it still belonged to God, but Adam was, in a sense, a tenant And as long as Adam was right with God, he continued to have dominion. However, we know that Adam fell. And when Adam fell, when he sinned, he lost that dominion. 
It was as if he had an inheritance. He lost that inheritance, but just think of it in terms of dominion. He had essentially the title of the uh, tenant. He was a tenant on earth, and he had that. It was his. He had dominion over it until he fell. Then a usurper came in, which we know, of course, is Satan. And Satan has held this position over the earth as ruler from the time of Adam's fall all the way to now. And he's going to continue to do it all the way up until the day of the Lord. And when the day of the Lord happens is when God is going to start settling accounts. And one of the things that he's going to do after all this time, he is going to take back the essential title deed of the earth. In the Old Testament, God had, had given Israel the land. And it's, it's portioned out what that land was. And he intended for Israel, the tribes of Israel, his people to own that land perpetually. Now, if they got in trouble and they needed to sell some land, then what they would do would be they would sell it to one of their fellow uh, brothers, a Jew, an Israelite, and let's say that they needed to sell the land in order to take care of bills or whatever it was. And when this happened, they would sell it to a what's called a kinsman redeemer, a, a fellow Jew. I'm calling them Jews. You can call them Israelite, but they are Hebrew, but it was of the God's people. And that kinsman redeemer would pay him for the land and then he had the right to, to administer it however he wanted for a period of time. But at the year of Jubilee, that would be the year of Jubilee fell every 49, after 49 years, that's seven sevens, then you had the year of Jubilee. At the year of Jubilee, everything would go back to the original owner. That way it stayed in the family, stayed in the Jewish family. So, but the kinsman redeemer, when he purchased that <clears throat> that uh, land from one of his brothers, because his brothers was in a scrape, he couldn't manage it anymore. He would pay a price for it, and they would have a deed. There was two copies of deeds. The first copy was was written on all the stipulations of it, and then people signatories would sign it on the outside. And that one would stay open for anyone to look at. But there was a second deed that was sealed. And it was written on the inside and the outside also. And the reason it was sealed is because if there was ever a dispute later on about that land, whose land it was, only the kinsman redeemer had the right to open that deed with the seal on it to prove that it hadn't been tampered with. The, one, the, the, the first deed... Uh, that was open. People, it was like public record or whatever, so people could look at it. <coughs> there was always a chance that someone could sneak in there and change some stipulations or so forth. And if that happened, if there was ever a dispute, then the kinsman redeemer who put the deed in a safe place, the one that sealed, the seal was to show that it hasn't been tampered with. So if there was something that went to court and they said, well, it says right here, so-and-so, so-and-so, and the kinsman redeemer said, no, that's not what the original said. He could take the, the 
seal deed. Remember, there was two copies. He'd take the seal deed, break the seal, and then he would show what the original one was. You got that? Okay. Now, if the, the, the kinsman redeemer, if he uh, bought the, he redeemed the land, he paid one of his fellow Jews for the land, and they would go do whatever they were going to do. He doesn't necessarily have to take administration of it right then. It's his. But he might go away. He might, uh, for, for instance, when the uh, Jews went into captivity into Babylon, uh, they were gone for quite a while. And when they came back, there no doubt was disputes about whose land was whose. Uh, and, and then the, the kinsman redeemer would go to that sealed deed and he would break open the seal and show this is the original thing and that would be his. But there might be people that are already there that had been living on the land and they don't want to leave. So the kinsman redeemer had to, there was two things that he had to be able to do. One was he had to have the purchase price in order to purchase the land. And the second thing he had to do after he had shown through the legalities of a sealed deed, he had to have the power to oust whatever people who had uh, claimed that the land was theirs. He had to come back and he would show, this is my land, and they might say, so what? He has to have the power to run them out. You got all that. Okay, now turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, the one sitting on the throne is God the Father. And he is holding this deed that is sealed. Now, you get the picture that this seal, this deed originated when Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid the purchase price. He redeemed. In other words, when, when Adam fell, his inheritance was essentially gone. He no longer had dominion. Satan moved in and took, took over. But when Jesus Christ went to the cross, it was as if a deed was established, a seal deed and it was put in a place of safety, secure. You don't get more secure than in the right hand of God the Father on the throne. That's where the deed is. And it has the seals on it. So it's the sealed deed. And so we're going to see that John was all upset because only the kinsman redeemer, the one that redeemed and bought the land, had the right to break the seals on the, on the uh, deed. And as it were, the reason that he was upset is because if no one can take this sealed deed out of the safe place, which is God the Father's right hand, and prove that it belongs not to the usurper but to him, then the usurper would continue to take the land, take over the dominion of the earth. You see what's going on now? At least, at least get this, the beginning of it. So it's God the Father who's sitting on the throne, who has the title deed, 
It's written on the front and the back, just as they did back in those days. And it's sealed with seven seals. Verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break the seals? And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. This is John speaking, and he says, And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Now, this is important because it's saying that only, just as only the kinsman redeemer, even if he left and someone moved in and took over the property, when he came back, he has legal right. He has a sealed deed. Only he can open it. No one else can go and open it. Only he can. And if he's not around or if he's not, if no one's around capable of opening the sealed deed to prove that the property is truly someone else's than the usurpers, then what's going to happen? The usurper continues to have administration over the land. It's not God's intention that this happen, but that's why John was bent out of shape. He thought, oh, no, if someone can't break the seals and demonstrate that this is a usurper that has taken over the earth, then we're doomed. The usurper is going to continue to, to administer rule over the earth. So verse 5, and, the one, and one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion is from the tribe of Judah. The root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, these, I, I'm not going to go into great detail, but the lion of Judah, of course, the lion is powerful. This would speak of his power to take care of the usurpers and run them out of town, run them off their property. And when you have the root of David, uh, this is this is an optimistic thing because what happens if you uh, if you cut down a tree and the root is still there? What happens sometimes? It comes, it keeps growing, doesn't it? And so even though the earth has been under Satan's dominion all these years because of the promise of uh, to David, that Christ is going to sit on David's throne and he's going to rule the world. Because of this, he's, he's got the right to do it. All this is, you go into more detail, but I'm just hitting that, nibbling at the edges on this. So Jesus Christ is the one who has the right to open the seals of that book, of that scroll, because he is the kinsman redeemer. He is the one that purchased the right to do so, and he did so when he paid for our sins and he suffered spiritual death on the cross. That was the redeeming price. So now someone is able to get the tenancy back to where it belongs and, and, and run the usurper out. Y'all with me so far? Okay. <clears throat> uh, verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. This is describing Christ. And he came back and he took it out of the hand, right hand of him who sat on the throne. So here is Christ. See, it's got to be at the right time. There's a time and place for everything. This, this will be the time and it will be the place. This title deed, essentially, to the planet Earth 
has been in safekeeping all of this time. Nobody could tamper with it, plus it has the seals on it. And so this is the time that Jesus Christ is going to come back and he is going to take care of the usurper, the ruler of this world, who does not have it lawfully. He usurped it. And what happens is when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to take it out of the, uh, God the Father's hand. And when he starts breaking these seals, what he's going to do is essentially unleash hell on unbelievers. It's going to be unbelievable uh, judgment. And when he does this, what, opening the seals is showing that he has the right to do so. And as he breaks these seals and these judgments that take place are happening, it's like Jesus is sending artillery in before he goes in and takes it himself. You know, this is what they do in military conflicts. They just don't send in the, the infantry. First, they soften it up and they're, they're lobbing artillery in there. And that's what these seals are doing, essentially. The, the usurper doesn't want to let go of it. He's going to put up a fight. So every time he listens to these seals and shows that he has the legitimate right to this property, planet Earth, it's softening up the enemy until it's time for him to actually come. The, the, the cavalry is coming. And actually the only one that needs to be there is Jesus Christ. Are you starting to get the picture of what this seal is about? He's showing legitimacy. He could do it, just come in and do it. Of course, we know that God is absolutely righteous, but he does everything the right, a right thing done in the right way, and even at the right time. So he is showing that he has, it's, the, the kinsman redeemer has the right to carry out what is ever in that document. Go with me so far? Okay. Verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and break its seals, for thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and every tongue, people and nation. Does this mean more to you now with this background? He's explained, they're singing the song saying, he's worthy. He paid the price. He's the purchase. Re he's the kinsman redeemer. And thou hast made us to be kings and priests to our God, and, and we will reign upon the earth. Verse 11. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the numbers and the numbers of them was myriad upon myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Can you imagine this, this wonderful the celebration going on here? John was crying. He thought, oh, no, the usurper is going to have a perpetual eternal hold on this property, planet Earth. No one is capable, no one is qualified to break the seals until Jesus Christ steps forward, takes it out of the, the God the Father's hand, and they just go bonkers. They're celebrating. These songs are saying, 
You see what's at stake. What's at stake is what's going to happen on planet Earth. All this time, we, we looked at the, when we first saw First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, and we saw the times and epochs last time. Remember that? And the, the times and epochs, one, the times is chronos, and it means a long period of time. It takes in dispensation, more than one dispensation. And it's like the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles is like this super deed over planet Earth on a smaller scale. Because when Nebuchadnezzar came in and took over Jerusalem and the Jews went into captivity, ever since that time, Jerusalem has been under the dominion of the Gentiles. Now, that's not the way God intended, but he allowed this to happen. And it's going to continue to be under the dominion of the Gentiles until these seals start being broken and God starts hitting them with artillery. And then when he comes back, when the cavalry comes back, Jesus Christ, then it's going to be over. Jerusalem will never again be under the rulership of the Gentiles. So that's a smaller type of thing. In other words, the... The Gentiles would be like the, they've usurped something that's not rightfully theirs. Just like Satan has usurped dominion over the earth that isn't rightfully his. But Christ took care of it on the cross. Now, he is the kinsman redeemer. He paid the price. The only thing left now is to show by the seal it belongs to him and that he can take care of everything that's in that seal in order to get it back. And believe me, he has the power to oust the usurper. And these people in, in the heavenly realms are, are going just berserko. They're so happy that this is the way that God had designed and it's, and it's being carried out here. Verses 13, verse 13. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying. Now, this is covers just about everybody, doesn't it? Remember a while ago it said, only Christ, no one on earth, under the earth, and no one else had the right to do this? Because God is absolutely just and righteous. And only Jesus Christ was the one qualified to redeem mankind. And if Satan or an angel or a man or anybody else claims that they can redeem it, they're wrong because only Jesus Christ can do it. Now the celebration goes on, verse 13. And everyone which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now this is an awesome sight. And it has everything to do with the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord, is, is as we're going to see, is when these seals start being ripped open, is showing that the, the, the usurper Satan is going to feel it every time. That his time is at an end. And all these judgments are taking place, and he is panicking. He is trying to do everything he can to hold on to the earth, but he can't do it. And every seal and every trumpet and every bold judgment that comes down on him puts him just that much closer to the time when Jesus Christ breaks the clouds and here he comes and Satan's day is done. He will be ousted off 
planet Earth down into the abyss. That's, that's just the beginning of what I wanted to tell you of the scope of the day of the Lord. But we have to get more specifics about it. But I thought that might be interesting to you. So now when you see Revelation 5, you can put it in perspective and we can say, Yippee! <laughs> the Kinsman Redeemer is coming back and he's taking control. We're going to see that even not only everything on the earth, the earth itself has been under the tyranny of the usurper all this time. God put a curse on the earth. And that curse is going to remain until Satan is ousted. And when Christ starts his millennial rule, there's not going to be a curse on earth anymore. No more thorns, no more thistles. Even animals are going to lose their ferocity. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. But it's going to begin at the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord has a purpose. The day of the Lord is when all hell is going to break loose because that's what it's going to take to remove the usurper. And he starts in increments. The Bible calls it like birth pangs. They get more severe and even more rapid. Yes, sir. Question. Mike, on, uh, on the day of the Lord, uh, this is talking about the right at the beginning of the tribulation for these warnings and stuff that comes out and mm-hmm. the bowls around him. Then he comes and appears seven years later. Right. We're, we're going to get into great detail here. I just gave... We backed up, and I just want to give you a panorama of what, what's happening. Well, we'll get to that. It, 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 yes, we're going to be out of here before the day of the Lord begins. The day of the Lord is for actually two categories. If it's hard, There's so much, it's so massive, it's hard to bring all together. But in the book of Daniel, Gabriel told Daniel that there was going to be 490 years left for the Jews They've had 483. The church age was inserted in there. It was put on hold. And by the time that God is ready for us to meet Christ in the air and we're out of there, there's going to be a little period of time before the day of the Lord begins. We're going to get into specifics of it so you can connect all the dots. But for right now, I'm just telling you, we're out of here. The day of the Lord has nothing to do with us because it's for Israel and it's for unbelievers. And we're not Israel. We're not God's chosen people. We're not the Old Testament saints. We're not family of God. We're royal family of God. We're church-age believers. And we're not unbelievers. And that's what God is going to wrest away from the usurper. And the usurper is using unbelievers. All the armies. It's so wonderful. God is so smart. I can't, I can't get over it. <laughs> he uses Satan. See, Satan is going to use... The men of the world, the armies of the world, at the last gasp to come to Armageddon to fight Christ when he is coming. And Satan thinks, look at me, boy, I've got all this power bringing all these people to fight Christ. Well, who does he think brought them? It's prophesied. It's God that's bringing them all from all over the world there. He's going to have it all in one pot. He's going to hand them, bam, right there. And Satan thinks that he's really got all this power. It's God that's doing it anyway. Now, Satan is smart. I don't know how he can think that he's going to be victorious. I guess he's kind of like Solomon. You know, Solomon was the most wise man there ever was. And he did some really stupid things, like marrying 700. The second phase will be a period of divine dominion over the world system 
where God's theocratic kingdom will be restored at the second advent. And then you have these verses here. It will demonstrate that God is sovereign over his universe. He's allowed these things to happen, but he's going to take back control. So the day of the Lord, we're going to get when it starts here in a moment. But it's not going to just last a day. It's going to last all the way from the time that these, the, I'm telling you here, the second seal, and I'll explain that in a moment, from the second seal all the way until the end of the millennium. And there's a good, there's a bad phase of it first, which is judgment and, and horrific time. It'll be worse than it ever has been or will be. But when that's over, it's going to be the complete opposite. It's going to be the best of times. That's when Christ is going to be reigning, and that whole big chunk is called the day of the Lord. That's in the broad sense. Now, there's a couple of verses in the Bible that have it in a very narrow sense, just of the exact day that he's coming down. You got that? Big broad day that covers darkness and judgment plus light and blessing, all in the broad sense of the day of the Lord. But there's a couple of verses that say the day of the Lord, when the armies have massed, the day of the Lord, they're talking about that 24-hour period, and you can make that distinction. Are you all with me? Okay. Point two. The day of the Lord can be viewed as, in the broad sense that its beginning is at the sixth seal of Revelation chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. So go there in your Bible, if you will, Revelation chapter 6. And it's ending at the end of the millennium. And I just told you about the narrow view, but let's look at this. Revelation chapter 6. <clears throat> And we just finished chapter 5, so here we go into chapter 6. Now, in chapter 5, there's no seals, there's no judgment. All we're doing is God is setting the legitimate, lawful grounds for doing what he's going to do. He's showing you, and when you get this background, you got a little bit that I gave you, you can see he's got the, the legal part taken care of, and now it's going to start being executed. The day of the Lord is coming. But let's look at, first of all, And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, I told you last time, this first... I don't think that the day of the Lord starts here. Some might want to argue it does, and I, it's not that big a deal. But this, this is a form of judgment in the sense that the world is being conned, but it's not the, the calamitous type of the type of judgment that's going to be coming. I, that's why I think it starts at the second seal, as you'll see in a moment. There's four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first one comes on the white horse, which is the first seal. Now, this is a counterfeit of Jesus Christ coming in Revelation chapter 19. He's going to be on a white horse also. They are not the same, but they do have some things in common. We're going to see as we continue that there are certain things that have to take place by the time Jesus Christ returns. And there are similarities between this rider on the white horse, which is Antichrist, and Jesus Christ, which is the Messiah, coming back. Both of them made a contract. 
Christ made a contract with Israel, and so is the Antichrist. Both of them promising peace and safety. The contract with Israel is going to be that covenant that's going to be signed with Israel. Israel has to be a nation, which they are. They weren't for nearly 2,000 years, but they are now. They're going to make a covenant. The difference is Jesus is going to fulfill his covenant. Antichrist is going to break his. Both of them are wearing crowns. And you read this, you say, okay, well, so what? Well, in the English, you can't tell the difference. But in the Greek, you can. The rider on the white horse is wearing a Stephanos crown, which is a victor's crown. The rider of the white horse in Revelation 19, which is Christ, is a diadem. It's a, a crown of royalty. So they're both wearing crowns, but they're not the same crowns. They're different crowns. Furthermore, you're going to have the rider on the uh, white horse here. Is con- go through. He's got a bow. You notice he's got a bow, but no arrows. This is not a hot war. This is politically, he is establishing his base. He is conning the world. And this is, let me, let me give you the, the scenario here of what fits why this is, is, is the revealing of Antichrist. We're going to see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, there are three things that's going to happen when Antichrist, well, I mean, when the day of the Lord begins. It's actually going to begin, uh, happen before the day of the Lord begins. One is the apostasy. One is the revealing of Antichrist. And the other one is the, uh, the restraining impact on evil is going to be removed. These are three things that are, that's going to take place before the day of the Lord. And what I'm saying is this, this verse, uh, this first seal is that revealing of Antichrist. He's on the world scene. I could go to Daniel and show you that he is going to be the 11th ruler of the 10-nation ten, ten confederation of the revived Roman Empire. And he is going to pluck out, he's called the little horn, and he's going to peck, uh, pull out three horns by their roots. He's going to take over three nations. He's going to be the head of the world at this time. The rapture is going to take place before this. We saw that in Revelation chapter 4 with the 24 elders. Our church-age believers, they're already in heaven. They're wearing uh, crowns. They're decorated. They're rewarded. All this is already taking place. And so when, when this happens, the, re- the revealing of the Antichrist, He's trying to settle down the earth because when the rapture occurs, there is going to be utter chaos. And people are going to be frightened. The whole world is going to be frightened. They're not going to know what to do. This is when Satan is going to operate through Antichrist. He is going to be a sin to the heights. He is going to, politically. There's nobody that's going to be more well-known or popular or celebrity more than him. He's going to like make Obama look like Obama, who, who's that? I mean, he is going to be the man. And this is the revelation of him in the first seal. And he's going through conquering politically, but not militarily. There's, he's got a bow, but no arrows. Okay, y'all ready? To continue. The second seal. Now, this is where I think that the day of the Lord actually begins. When the artillery start, uh, shells start hitting, softening up, planet Earth, getting ready for his return. And when, he, and when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. 
And another, a red horse, went out to him who sat on it and granted to take peace from the earth and that men should slay one another and a great sword was given to him. So you're going to have war. We have war now, but this is going to be probably nuclear war. We don't have nuclear war right now, but you go into some of the Old Testament uh, prophets and they talk about columns of smoke and all these things. These things are going to be taking place then. So what I'm establishing here is the broad view of the day of the Lord. I think it's going to start at the second seal, because in the first seal is revealing Antichrist. And then the second seal, actually, every time God breaks, uh, Christ takes and breaks that seal, he is initiating all this judgment upon the earth. That he, sometimes he uses men, he uses Satan, he uses different people, but it's God that's doing it. Because he's fulfilling what's in the, in the scroll. He has the right to do so. And this is what it's going to take. There's a couple of reasons why he's going to have to do this. First of all, the usurper, usurper is not going to leave without a fight. It's going to take unbelievable power and suffering to loosen the usurper. The other reason is because Israel has blotted out Christ all this time as a, as a whole. There are... Jews that are Christians. They're Christian Jews, Messianic Jews. However, the masses of Jews still do not believe that Jesus Christ is their Messiah and is still waiting for their Messiah. And so it's going to take this unbelievable horror of the tribulational period to finally break their arrogance and they're going to be seeing Christ come in the clouds. In other words, it's going to take this much destruction to break them and humble them to recognize they they murdered their own Messiah. Okay, you with me? Okay, that's just kind of background for the, the day of the Lord. So when we look at point two, the day of the Lord can be viewed in a broad sense that has beginning at the second seal or Revelation 6, 3 for, 3 for 4, and it's ending at the millennium, end of the millennium. You go to Second Peter chapter 3 and it talks about uh, the day of the Lord, and it's going to be the new heavens and new earth and so forth. This is going to take place at the end of the millennium. Now, I'm saying this more than one time because you've got to get it in your... You hear it once, you can maybe understand it, but you need to remember it. The broad day of the Lord includes judgment at the first part. There's darkness and there's judgment. That's the tribulational period. And then the last part, you have light and blessing. This is when Christ returns. He's going to put Satan out. He starts his millennial rule, and this is the, the blessing part. That's the broad sense. The narrow sense is just the day that Christ is returning to at the second advent. And in Joel chapter 3, verse 9 through 16, Zechariah 14, 1 through 5, it is speaking of the day of the Lord in the narrow sense, just as the day that he's coming by. And those verses talk about the armies are amassed and this is about to happen. Now, I'm just back to where I was going to start tonight. <laughs> Here's a kind of a, a graph. The day of the Lord has both aspects, darkness and judgment, as well as light and blessing. Here's the... This will start the... the, the Second seal is when it's going to actually, the artillery barrage starts. Now, the, the artillery barrage, I'm not saying 
that what we know as Daniel's 70th week, or, or you could say what we would call the tribulation, starts at the second seal. I'm not saying that. The actual 70 years begins when that treaty is signed. When that treaty of Antichrist is signed, that's when the 77 years begin. But nobody knows. See, we don't know when Christ is going to return. And we're going to see, as we continue in our scripture here, that nobody knows when the day of the Lord is going to be, when it's going to start. In fact, they're so mixed up, they're going to be saying peace and safety and whammo. God is going to lower the hammer on them. And they, don't want to, they won't even know what's coming, but we'll see that in a minute. So the, the, the darkness part is divine wrath during the tribulation. Here's the narrow sense of the day of the Lord. This is the day of the second advent when Christ comes. He's going to obliterate the armies that Satan has amassed. All unbelievers will go down into hell, into torments. It's called the baptism of fire. And Satan will be locked up. That will start his millennial reign in the last 1,000 years. And this is going to be light, divine blessing, and God's rule. This is the broad sense of the day of the Lord. The narrow sense is just the day. Y'all got it? Ready to move on? Okay. The word day in Genesis has both a broad sense, 24-hour day, and a narrow sense, just part of a 24-hour day. I closed on this last time, but it's good to hear it again. In Genesis, it says the evening and the morning were the first day. That lasted how long? 24 hours. That's the broad sense. And we also read, and God called the light day. Well, the light was only part of a day, and yet God is calling it day, and that's only part of a day. So the... The idea that there can be a broad sense and a narrow sense of the word day is perfectly proper. The Bible already uses it in Genesis. So this isn't something that's weird. Point five. The broad day of the Lord will not include the rapture of the church, but will include the second advent of Christ. Therefore, the rapture must be a separate event from the second advent. Now, you say, duh, but there are a lot of people that think the second advent and the rapture happen at the same time. You say, well, how do they believe that? Well, how does the preterist say that all prophecies have already been fulfilled? I don't know. Stupido. But what do you do? There will be a period of time between the rapture and the beginning of the day of the Lord. Do you understand that? The tribulation does not begin when the rapture occurs. The rapture is going to occur, and I don't know how long it's going to be. I don't think it's going to be that long a time, but everybody is going to be in a dither. And who's going to come along and save the day? Supposedly, Antichrist. And in his conquering, his political shenanigans and so forth, he is going to make a deal with Israel, and when that contract is signed, that starts the seven-year period. And it's speculation as to how much time can pass between the time that we're out of here and, and, <coughs> excuse me, and then he makes the deal with Israel. But you can be assured of this. When he makes the deal with Israel, he is going to be revealed. Everyone is going to know who he is. It's just like when Hitler was, was the chancellor of Germany and then he was the Fuhrer. You couldn't go into a coffee shop. Everywhere you went, what would you see pictures of? Hitler. It's going to be the same thing. Antichrist is just going to be the man of the hour. Yes, Michael. 
Yeah, the, the, where, when the first seal appears and when the, the, the covenant is signed, I can't, I can't pinpoint it. I don't know exactly when, but we know one thing. When the church is out of here and the, what I will teach later in Second Thessalonians, the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is in us, we're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit, hopefully filled with the Holy Spirit. When that's gone, then those are the things that are going to enable the Antichrist to rise into power. And sometime during this first seal, or I, I don't, he's got to already be a, a, a player by the time he makes that contract. But when that contract is signed is when that 70, last 70 weeks of Daniel, the seven-year period, begins. But the birth pangs that we'll see if we ever get to Revelation 5.3 is going to happen when the artillery barrage starts hitting. And I'm saying that's the second seal. Okay? Okay, the broad day of the Lord will not include the rapture of the church, but it will include the second advent. Therefore, the rapture must be a separate event from the second advent. There will be a period of time between the rapture and the beginning of the broad day of the Lord. Already, there's, there's, there's going to be a contract signed in between that time. And all the things that you see in Ezekiel and Daniel about the the horns being ripped out by the roots and all the political maneuvering and all this kind of thing. I don't know how long it's going to take, but uh, the time that the rapture, I mean, the tribulation begins will be when that treaty is signed. Point six, Paul describes the beginning of the day of the Lord. First of all, he said, the broad day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, suddenly, unexpectedly, when victims are unprepared. This is First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. The unsaved will be given no forewarning of the coming of the broad day of the Lord. This rules out the possibility any seals of Revelation, or I would say here the, six, the, the last six remaining seals of Revelation, as being forewarnings of the broad day of the Lord. I'm going to have an example, example here. It rules out the sixth seal in Revelation chapters, uh, the sixth seal of Revelation 6, 12 through 14, that will cause great cosmic disturbances and major earthquakes, causing people to flee to the mountains with terror. That is Revelation 6, 15 through 17. That's the sixth seal that Christ breaks. There's going to be a lot of trouble. In light of this reaction, if the disturbances of the sixth seal were a precursor to the day of the Lord, in other words, the day of the Lord did not occur until the sixth seal, then the unsaved thereby would be given a graphic forewarning of its coming and would not be caught by surprise when it comes. Thus, the day of the Lord would not come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. You got that. It says that not a, it's, it's going to be like birth pangs. You ladies that had have babies before, when you had that first birth pang, were, did you know when it was going to happen? No, you, you're just all of a sudden, you're going along. I don't know. I never experienced this, but I assume you're going along, and all of a sudden you go, you know, you, uh-oh, something happened. Didn't know it was going to happen. You know where you're going to be or what you're going to, what's going to be going on. That's, that's the idea. And for those that think that the day of the Lord starts at the midpoint, you're already going to have the four horsemen are going to ride. You're going to have war. You're going to have famine. You're going to have pestilence. You're going to have one-fourth of the population of earth is going to be wiped out. 
And how in the world can something like the day of the Lord then catch them by surprise? What's going to happen is when Antichrist ascends to the top politically and takes control, and he's going to tell everybody, it's fine, I've got it covered. And he's going to, he's going to even have Israel. Who so far has been able to make a contract with Israel and make it stick? Nobody. But he's going to convince them he's the man. Even the Jews are going to trust him. A lot of people think that the Jews are going to think he's the Messiah. And so when this happens, they're going to be caught off guard because they're finally the, in the wake of the, tribula, of, of the rapture, excuse me, all the chaos that has taken place and people are all upset. He's going to calm them all down. I've got it under control. I am the man. Just trust me. Israel, got it made. Seven years, you don't have to worry. I'm going to protect you. You can go back and you can have the temple. You can have the sacrifices. You can do all these things. It's all going to be covered. And people are going to say, look at the stock market. It's doing fine. Finally, we're back to normal. And when they're saying peace and safety, whammo, that's when the day of the Lord is going to start. And that's going to be at the second seal. That's what I'm saying. Point B. Paul stated that the broad day of the Lord will begin at the same time the unsaved will claim that they have established a state of peace and safety in the world. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 George Milligan asserted that the tense and mood of the verb translated shall say, together with the word translated when in the statement, when they shall say peace and safety, indicate coincidence of time in the events spoken of. It is at the very moment when they are saying that. Literally, people will be saying, ha oh, ha, isn't it great? See, Antichrist has brought in a false millennium and they're buying it. They have rejected Christ. They have believed the lie that Satan can rule the world and bring about peace and safety and everything that people want. And at the very beginning, when they're saying, finally, it's back to normal, that's when it's going to hit. They'll be saying peace and safety. And that's not the first time that they've done this. They said, I can, I'm going to take you to some scriptures in the Old Testament when they were saying the same thing. The false leaders were telling them, everything is fine, peace and safety, no problem. Of course, I'm sure none of our leaders would ever do that, but tongue-in-cheek. Uh Peace will be removed from the earth when the second seal is broken, Revelation chapter 6, 3 through 4. The, the peace will be established by Antichrist when he goes around and he's conning everybody. I've got it covered. Then it's going to hit. A study of Revelation 6 through 19 clearly indicates that there will be no peace or safety for the unsaved from the time of the second seal through the second advent immediately after the great tribulation or after the Great Tribulation. In other words, once that second seal is broken, there is no peace or safety, and it gets worse all the way up until the time that Christ comes. And then unbelievers are had. And so is Satan. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, Antichrist will attempt to counterfeit Christ, bringing peace to the world. When he comes riding a white horse, promising peace, Ezekiel 34, 23 through 30 says that God establishes His covenant of peace with Israel. The covenant will result in safety, peace with nations, and the elimination of harmful beasts and famine. By contrast, the Antichrist establishes His covenant of peace with Israel. God will, when He does that, after He does His contract, 
then God will inflict the world with conditions opposite those brought by His covenant of peace. In other words, when Antichrist has made the world saying peace and safety, that's when God is going to say, okay, it's going to be just the opposite of what Satan is going to say. He can't do it. Point C, Paul asserted that the destruction at the start of the broad day of the Lord will come just as suddenly as travail. Literally, the birth pain comes upon a woman who is about to give birth. First Thessalonians 5, 3. Paul used the singular form of birth pain and placed the definite article, the, before it. This together with the emphasis on how the day of the Lord will start and the suddenness with which its destruction will come indicates that Paul was referring to the very first birth pain. It is a woman's very first birth pain that comes suddenly at the start of a painful process of giving birth. Not the later hard labor pains. The reason I, you say, well, okay, so what? So if, here's the point. If the labor pains did not begin until the midpoint of the tribulation, you're already getting into the hard labor pains, and that's not how they start. Ladies, you don't start with the hard labor pains at the very beginning, do you? The beginning of labor pains are easier. I'm talking about something, I know I never had a baby, but I assume, you know, they're manageable. And then towards the end, uh, you don't want to be in the womb. Uh, womb. <laughs> you don't want to be in the room with some ladies uh, because I understand it's quite an ordeal. Maybe you do want to be a woman in the room and comfort them and all, but... Uh, when my daughter was born, there was, no, there was no deal about it anyway. When I got off the elevator, this big nurse about this tall, about this wide, she said, you the daddy? I said, yeah. You go to the stock room. Not the stock room, the stark room. That's where daddy's waited. And 12, 12 hours later, I was presented with a little baby girl. And about five guys came in after me, and they went. They already had their babies and gone. I was protesting. I was here first. Made no difference. Thus, as we conclude earlier, Paul was teaching that the beginning of the broad day of the Lord will, character, uh, will be characterized by the very first birth pang. These points are covered in detail in Ari Shower's book. This is uh, where I've got uh, some of this information. Maranatha, our Lord, come. Birth pangs are a favorite metaphor for tribulations God's judgment will bring upon man. The beginning of birth pangs and the first four seals are the same thing. That's the beginning of, birth, of, the, of the birth pangs. Or actually, it's the, I could say it's the last... Uh, the, first, the first one is the revealing. The world must go through seven years of birth pangs for Messiah, for the Messianic age to be born into the world. You got that? Messianic age is Jesus Christ, millennial rule. And it's not going to come in all of a sudden. It's going to come in. The world's going to have seven years of birth pangs. And it's going to be doing so much. It's resting away the deed from the usurper. Jesus called the suffering described in Matthew 24, 5 through 7, the beginning of birth pangs in verse 8. This would suggest that the more severe birth pangs of hard labor would occur later after the abomination of desolation takes place. 
The abomination of desolation was, was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. It's going to take place at the midpoint of the tribulation. So there's a distinction between the first half, which is called the beginning of birth pangs, and that from the day of the abomination of desolation, Satan's going to go into the temple. He's going to make a mess. And towards the end, that is the more severe labor pains. So, the birth pangs in Matthew 24 can be compared with the five seals in Revelation chapter 6. You got it? <laughs> and here is the deal here. I'm gonna, I'll say this for next time. We're going to be comparing Matthew 24, 5 through 9 with Revelation 6 through 1, and you will be amazed at how comparable they are. They're essentially the same thing, and they are the beginning of birth pangs. And I'm past time. Y'all have been very great. You've been concentrating the whole time, and I've been speaking fast and covering a lot of ground. I'm going to try next time to slow down. But when I'm teaching this, I'm trying to get as much in as I can at one time so you get it in one snapshot to see what's going on. We'll continue this next time. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time you've given us to look at your matchless plan. We are so thankful that you are the omnipotent, omniscient God that loves us. And you've already provided the victory over death for us. And we're going to have a ringside seat to this whole affair. And we are so thankful. We pray that you'll help us meditate on these things, connect the dots, because for sure we will have a greater appreciation for who and what you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.